We are beginning a new study tonight, and I'm <clears throat> basing it on the AP book, Is Christianity Logical? And I will be giving you a copy of that uh, probably next week, but I wanted to take you through some preliminary stuff first before we launch into that book. Why would... Uh, Christians want to study the concept of logic. Why would we spend Bible study time talking about logic? And of course, the answer to that question is because God created the human mind. And he created our minds to function like his. One of the things that, has, that explains how we are made in the image of God. We share certain features of God's own mind, the way our minds work. And so he's communicated to us in such a way that we can understand him. But we have to think clearly and reason correctly, or we will arrive at false views. And as you well know, the bulk of the world is in that situation. Think how many people, not just in religion, but in in many different facets of life. Look how many different crazy views there are out there that you and I know are not true. They're just not true. When people tell you that they've seen miracles, uh, years ago I was, uh, you know how churches will work with other churches to send somebody to a prison to, uh, to teach in their chapel. <clears throat> I was living up in southern Illinois and I went to a medium security unit and uh, would teach in that chapel, and I was teaching about miracles and showing how, what the Bible says, you know, how clear it is about they don't, they don't happen today. This fellow stood up, and he said, I have personally cast out headaches and athlete's feet. He was as serious as he could be. Well, what do you do with someone like that? In other words, his subjective experience of what he think he's done or seen or had or, or accomplished uh, overrides what the Bible says. And if you and I were to try to convince the 300 plus million people right here in the United States of any number of our views, whether you know something like abortion, how much of the country disagrees on that? They think it's okay to abort babies. And if we try to convince them you have to be immersed for the remission of your sins or God will not accept you in eternity, the vast majority of Americans in the world would say that's not true. We don't agree with that. So there are a number of reasons why people adopt false views, but one is they don't reason correctly. And God expects that of us. Um, I thought about getting this book for you and letting you take it and read it, and we walk through it. But then I thought, um, I just want to introduce you to the salient points of the book. I, when I taught at uh, Brown Trail School of Preaching, a fundamentals course it was called. This is one of the things I would take the students through. You remember Brother Warren debated Anthony Flew back in 1976. At the time, he was, you know, the world-renowned atheist uh, philosopher and uh, that was a tremendous debate. I mean, Brother Warren just whipped him. I mean, whipped him good. 
and uh, that's all available in book form in the videotape. And, uh, it ought to be in all of our Christian schools, Christian schools and the Christian colleges. Ought to be teaching the kids how raw unbelief, represented by the best representative of the day, was soundly refuted by a New Testament Christian that understood what the Bible teaches on the subject and how to think clearly and reason correctly. And use uh, use clues on materials against the book called Thinking Script and Logic. But we sure didn't do it in that debate. And Brother Warren just put that back on me over and over. It's going to his own position. But if you have, I hope you have something to write with. If you don't, maybe a pencil or whatever. You've been given this. This is a test, I think, that I gave in this course. And I'd just like to walk you through this. And then if we get through it all tonight, next week, I'd like for us to kind of have a little oral test. And we'll just put it out there and you... If you want to give an answer, you can, if you don't. But these are concepts. By the way, all of these concepts are in the Bible. You know, they may not be stated as that. You can't look in your concordance to see the law of rationality or the word logic. Although the word logic is in the Bible. Look at Romans chapter 12, for example, verse 1. Somebody read that to us in your translation. Um, but all of these concepts are there because they have to do with thinking, how the mind is designed to function, how to reason correctly. And God demands that of every person. Nobody can stand before God and say, well, I just didn't understand that. I, I didn't get that out of the Bible or whatever. They can't do that. Uh, that shows that they fail to apply themselves sufficiently to arrive at the truth. Jesus said you can know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So you're under obligation to study and search and examine until you get to the truth. And then John said, you remember in 1 John 2, um, you can know that you have arrived at the truth. You can know that you know. So even though we live in a skeptical society that tries to make our young people feel like, oh, there's no such thing as absolute truth, you can't know for sure. Uh, that's simply not true when they contradict themselves by saying that because they're telling these kids, we know for sure that you can't know. So, Romans 12, read verse uh, 1. They notice the term reasonable there. Some of the newer versions use the term spiritual. The word is logikos. If you want to write this down, the letters, here they are. L-O-G-I-K. There is no C in the Greek alphabet. So a cut sounds K. And then the O-S, omega S. Logikos. There's the word logic. So he's saying this is your rational service of worship. The reason why the translators would render it spiritual, by the way, this word occurs over in first. Peter, where it says, when he speaks of the sincere, there's the word sincere. Some translations say spiritual or pure spiritual. Why would he say spiritual? Because the word spiritual refers to your spirit, your mind. So anything that's spiritual is attacked by the Holy Spirit and it's addressed to your spirit. Thank you.
your service. I don't know if they're copying you. What they mean is, while I was emotionally stimulated and caused to really get excited, well, that's emotional stimulation and excitement. That's not spirituality. Spirituality is where the mind receives the Holy Spirit's information. And your mind accepts that and absorbs it and is thrilled by that. But whether or not your emotions kick into gear and you're excited, which I would think they would if you, when you realize, I've, I've arrived at the truth. You know, like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, that you know, when he learned all this and, and understood it and said, well, here's water, why can't I? See, that's all cognitive, intellectual. That's a spirit engaged with the Holy Spirit's information through, through Peter uh, Philip's teaching. Then he went on his way rejoicing. So, um, God expects us to be logical, rational. Now turn to Acts chapter 26, and let's look at one of the verses, and we'll jump into this. Do you remember when Paul was before, wasn't it, Festus? And he was listening to this information, which was shaking him up a bit. He's, he finally just said, Paul, I, I think you're, you're crazy. Your, your highfalutin education's made you nuts. Mad is the terminology used there, although in English the word mad usually means angry, doesn't it? We've kind of changed that some of the time. But mad being insane or mentally off your rocker. And he just responded very simply, you know that's not true. The words that I'm speaking to you, they are. And here's two Greek words that mean, first of all, true. We're going to define the word true in number eight. These words are true and they are rational. They are sensible. They are um, cognitively ac accurate. Um, you would have to be irrational and illogical to reject them. The Bible does this all over the place. But most people in human history have, have allowed other considerations uh, to determine their behavior and their decisions. It's not because people can't know the truth or that they cannot reason correctly and arrive at the truth. It's because there are other things in their life that mean more to them than truth. And we're masters of uh, self-delusion and we're masters of excusing ourselves for not the truth and conforming our lives to it. That, that's just been the history of humanity. It starts with Adam and Eve and it's always with it. Adam and Eve didn't have any problem understanding the truth. That's not, and, and you know, the Bible stipulates what was motivating her. It tells us exactly what motivated her. And it wasn't a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge, like she couldn't know God's word. She knew God's word well enough to repeat it. So it wasn't knowing truth, it was not wanting to accept it. There were other things that meant more to her that she wanted in life. And there's pretty much the rest of human history. You know, we point to Adam and Eve and say, man, they sure caused a lot of trouble for the rest of us. They simply did what every, every one of us has done. And how most of humanity continues to do daily through 6,000 years. All right, if you'll take your pencil and pen, let's define the term logic. Let me give you two definitions of it. Um, 
that I think will be helpful to you. One would be uh, logic is the science of correct reasoning. The science of correct reasoning. Another definition, saying the same thing. A discipline that distinguishes between correct and incorrect. city. When you go, go to their website and look at some of their sermons and they'll say wacky things like that. And they have an agenda. They're trying to discourage people from the truth. Alright, let's just de define the term proposition. Again, notice that there's nothing uh, mystical about any of this or it's not uh, anything that the Bible is not in harmony with. There's just formal ways to state these concepts. So the word proposition is a statement that says that something either is or is not the case. That's all a proposition is. I heard, again, a professor ridiculing the idea, uh, that a statement that was made, that the, the entirety of the Bible is propositional truth. Listen to that. The entirety of the Bible is propositional truth. That is... Every sentence in the Bible is a statement that says that something either is or is not the case. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a statement that says that something is the case, right? Every sentence in the Bible is that way. And he was ridiculing that because, again, the liberal element wants to try to... Uh, act as if, you know, the Bible's not that easy to understand, and they want to inject their ideas and try to say that the Bible is teaching what I believe and what I'm promoting. 
All right, that's propositional truth. Um, and they, they will, uh, logic books will break this down into different types of propositions, categorical, hypothetical, and others, but we don't need to go into all of that. Now look at this next sentence. Uh, the word argument is a technical term that logicians use. Um, rather than the way you and I typically use it, like, oh, they had an argument, meaning they were fussing at each other. But a, a formal logical argument, like in a debate, uh, one of the uh, speakers will put forth an argument. And in logic, that consists of, an argument consists of propositions. Remember our definition of propositions, a statement that says that something either is or isn't the case. Some of which function as premises. Premises. You've heard the term premise. And one as the conclusion. Okay, so this is not hard. Again, when you start looking at things formally, just like math, it may seem hard until you understand what, what these symbols and so forth are doing. If you had uh, this uh, syllogism, um, all cars are green. Um, my Ford is green. Therefore, all Fords are green. Well, the first two lines, there are propositions, aren't they? The first two serve as premises, and the third one serves as a conclusion. Even the third one, though, is a proposition. So arguments have premises and then a conclusion that follows from those premises if it's, an ac if it's a valid argument, a sound argument. Argument is discourse which contains implication. This is a very important term and concept, and it's all, again, all through the Bible. It's all through the Bible. And as we go along, I'll, I'll show you that. Um, well, let's, let's define these two terms real quick, and then we'll spend more time on, on implication. An argument is valid. We're going to define validity. An argument is valid if the conclusion is implied by the premises. Uh, let me give you another one. Uh, you've heard this one before. Socrates, let's see, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore what? Okay, notice the first two are premises. The third is a conclusion. Does the third one follow from the first two premises? If it does, that's a valid argument. So validity is defined as the conclusion follows from the premises. Okay? That makes it a valid argument. What makes the argument sound? The argument is sound if, if the argument is valid and the premises are true. See, an argument could be valid but not sound because the conclusion doesn't follow. 
Yes, <laughs> exactly. That's, that's a valid argument, but it's not sound. An argument is sound if the argument is valid and all the premises are true. You don't have to do anything if you don't want to, right? If you want to live your life illogically and irrationally, I'll help you get them down if you don't get them all down. All right, and some of this, by the way, we're hurrying through it, you don't have time to think about it, but once you settle into this, you'll see this is all so clear. And it will help you tidy up your own understanding of your beliefs and your views that you've come to because you know they're true. And they, they will stand the test of, uh, of opposition because they're true. Let's define explicit teaching. That is teaching that is stated in so many words. So from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, there's the explicit statements of the Bible. That's all explicit teaching. Okay, but how does that differ from implicit teaching? Okay, listen to this... Um, not really technical, but a, a specific uh, definition. Implicit teaching necessarily follows from the explicit teaching. It necessarily follows from the explicit teaching. And we just had an example of that. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. There's your explicit teaching. Now what necessarily follows from that, though it's not explicitly stated in those two premises, Socrates is a man. Is that as true as the other two statements? Yeah. But not explicitly stated. The Bible's filled with this. The Bible is filled with this. And God expects us to infer properly what he is implying. Let me give you just one example. In Ephesians 4, verse 4, we're told that there are how many churches? Just one. Actually, we're told there's how many what in Ephesians 4, 4? One, one body. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, we are told that the body is the church. What conclusion, what implicit I'm not aware that the Bible anywhere says there's one church. But what follows from the fact that the Bible says there's one body, and the body is the church? There's one church. Does the Bible teach that? Yes. Does it teach it explicitly? No. But it teaches, but implicit teaching is just as binding and true as explicit teaching. But it's your responsibility to reason correctly to come to the conclusions that God wants you to come to. Uh, here would be another one. Does the Bible anywhere say that the Pope of Rome is an imposter? He is not the apostle of Christ on earth. He's not the vicar of Christ. Does it say that anywhere? No. 
but does the, not explicitly. But it teaches that implicitly, doesn't it? Absolutely. And do you realize that there is more teaching that emanates from God's word implicitly than explicitly? So we have the totality of the explicit teaching of God between Genesis and Revelation. But the, that material implies so much other stuff. You know, for example, does the Bible teach that you should never um, inject heroin into your arms, into your arm, become a heroin addict? The Bible teaches that, doesn't it? Just not explicitly. Brent? Yes. Yes. Yep. Encyclopedia Britannica is probably 20 some volumes. The Bible is so much shorter. It's so brief. And yet it teaches so much beyond its explicit statements. Yeah. What? Absolutely. And done in such a way that uh, the human mind can get it if it desires to do so. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. People only reason, they reason in religion like they reason in no other part of their lives. Otherwise, they'd be jailed or lose their job or whatever. Jeremy, did you have a question? That's our liberal brethren's uh, most prominent argument given to justify instruments in worshiping God, praise teams, hand clapping, you know, women preachers, I mean, on and on and on, because there's no explicit thou shalt not. But of course, that reasoning simply will not stand up to Scripture. The Bible's loaded with. Uh, prohibitions of many different activities that are not explicitly worded, thou shalt not. Take, for example, uh, Romans chapter 6. Somebody read verse uh, uh, 1, Romans 6, 1. Okay, stop right there. In terms of grammar, what is that sentence? It's a question. So it's an interrogative is what grammarians would say. What is a command? What do, what do grammarians call a command? Close. Imperative. An imperative. That's not in the imperative mood. That's in the interrogative. It's a question. But what's the upshot of that question? 
Thou shalt not continue in sin, thinking that grace will continue to abound. Right. Right. So the Bible issues all kinds of commands all over the place without doing it so in the casting it in the form of a thou shalt not. Now notice and we figure that out in about 10 seconds. So people that hold to these things and argue, well, the Bible didn't say I can't do that anywhere. It's obvious they're biased and are not really interested in what the Bible teaches on the matter. They want that as a facade to feel justified in doing what they've already decided they want to do. Notice I'm saying that without judging their hearts. I'm simply saying the Bible's not that hard to understand, so you must have ulterior motives. That's the only, by the way, there's an implication, right? There is such a thing as embracing error out of ignorance, and once a person uh, comes to a knowledge of the truth, then they abandon their ignorance and embrace the truth. But once people have been taught the truth on such matters and shown it in Scripture, and they continue to hold to error, then you know their hearts are impure. And on that basis, they'll lose their souls in eternity. When someone says, you're telling me that, that God's not going to let me be in heaven just because I refuse to be immersed? No, God's not going to let you be in heaven because you have stubbornly defied his will. Why would you think God would accept you in that condition? We don't have to talk about the details. You've already shown an attitude of rebellion against God. So it would be better to word the question, will God allow anyone to live with him eternally who are in a state of rebellion? I guess if, he, if he's going to do that, he'll let Satan in as well. Because that pretty much describes his condition, does it not? All right, let's define true. When we say that something is true, we are saying that it correctly describes reality. Now notice that none of these definitions depend upon, uh, you know, a human will come along and say, well, I think that's true. And it turns out it's not. Well, he was using the word true in a loose way. Because truth is an accurate description of reality. And number nine is another little technical thing. Truth and falsity relate to propositions. You know, a proposition is either true or false. You know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's either true or false. Validity and soundness refer to arguments. Remember, an argument, look at number three, consists of propositions, some of which function as premises, and one is the conclusion. So arguments can be valid, and they can also be sound, which means they're valid and their premises are true. Number ten, am I hurrying too quick? Yes, okay. Just wondered. It's not going to change anything. I just wanted to know. <laughs> but if you have a question, I'll pause and let you ask it. As long as it's a rational, logical question. Okay. With what? What we're doing? I'm wanting you to digest these concepts so that we can then go to the Bible and walk through the Bible and look how 
God uses all of these principles when he speaks through his inspired representative, from Jesus to Paul to Peter. Anybody in the Bible that represented God accurately applied these principles. They spoke truth. They did it in a logical fashion. If you could ever find anybody in the Bible whom God endorsed, reasoning in an illogical or flawed way, you could disprove the Bible. But that's simply not the case. Everybody in the Bible that were uh, bona fide representatives of God argued their cases uh, logically and uh, never advanced an unsound argument. That's a pretty big challenge and a pretty big bold statement. Not only is that the case, I'm telling you, when you start sitting down and looking at how Jesus turned his verbal opponents upside down in every which way but loose, in a very brief, um, with few words, when you start digging in, like, like what Jesus did there with uh, Satan in the temptation, it's just presented so succinctly, Satan said this, Jesus said this. Satan jumps to another question, says this, Jesus says this. And it's like, oh, okay. You dig into those and see what, what's Jesus quoting from? What's his point? What's he arguing here? And why does Satan give up so easy? It's a debate. And Jesus conducted himself in such a, a uh, accomplished fashion that he devastated his opponent to the point that he had to abandon and move to another thing. Finally, just dropped the whole thing. And that happens over and over and over in Jesus' life. And then you watch Peter and Paul, and they come along and do the same thing. Um, and I mean, it's technical the way they do it. When you, when you start taking it apart and looking at it using the labels, the terms that logicians have come up with, which I realize is not inspired. These are just terms that describe or define an idea. When you see Jesus using technical you know, for example, in Matthew 12, when he's dealing with that incident where he and his disciples are passing through the grain field, he, he literally uses argumentum ad hominem, a very specialized argument that's designed very specifically to deflect your opponent's charge by showing his own hypocrisy and inconsistency. Uh, that logical argument format is not designed uh, to prove your position, but it's designed to disarm your opponent where you've, you've taken the wind out of his sails. And then Jesus goes ahead and proves his point, proves his argument. Well, that's very specific. And um, you remember how many times the Bible says in the New Testament, nobody, they, they quit asking him questions. They quit attacking him on things because they were being humiliated and shut down in front of everybody. Remember in Matthew 21, uh, they ask a question. You say, well, I'll answer your question if you answer this one. And the nature of that question was such, they understood the impact of it. They said, uh, we're not going to answer that. Well, he was using precise, logical acumen to disarm his opponents, convict them of their own um, duplicity and hypocrisy, and convincing the observers, notice, that these men were not authoritative representatives of God as they claimed to be, Pharisees, Sadducees, so forth. 
And if they were interested in the truth, then they would have been dazzled by what Jesus did. In John 6, you remember, they came out for the food and then continued to press him for more food. And so he started putting it on them. He gave them good spiritual information that was designed to prick their minds, their spirits, to think clearly. But in the final analysis, what asserted itself in their lives? Their minds or their bodies? Their bodies, their flesh, their appetites. There's the world. There's the world around us. And sadly, too many in the church. Explicit teach, uh, teaching is stated in so many words. You know, Frank has referred many, many times to the church of liberalism. That's kind of become your official label for what we've been, all been talking about for years about liberalism. But the church of liberalism, I like that. Uh, they are dominated. I mean, if you go and sit there and be honest and neutral and say, I just want to know what you have. I want to understand your appeal, why people flock in here. How about that church of the highlands over there? And you just sit back and take it all in, and you're going to realize that the bulk of this is appealing to my flesh. You know, it's creating excitement, emotion. Um, I was in Tarpon Springs, Florida years ago in a gospel meeting, and that's a predominantly Greek Orthodox community. They uh, kind of built up that community from the sea. And they were <clears throat> expert uh, sponge divers. You know, now you make sponges artificially, I guess. But back then, there were no sponges on the planet, I guess, except what you got off the bottom of the ocean. Anyways, the preacher took me into a Greek Orthodox church building. And when I walked in that back door, I literally felt awe, you know, and a kind of a, a sense of uh, maybe humility. It was like, well, it was loaded with finery. There was gold everywhere. There was fabric everywhere. There were statues embedded in the walls artistically. I mean, the whole thing was calculated to appeal to the human spirit in, in the sense of emotion, passion, physical stimulation. It, it literally had an impact on me. And notice that it wasn't teaching me anything. There was nothing rational there. It wasn't screaming to me information that would help me to understand who God is and what he expects of me. It was all of the trappings and the finery and the glitter and all the smoke and mirrors. That in and of itself had an impact upon my spirit. And I can see why people that are not studied and they're not really, they haven't lived their lives thinking and learning and reading and pouring over God's word, they would be drawn in by that. And they would want to become regular members and uh, be there and give lots of money to it. But there's nothing to it. It's all symbolism over substance. It's, it's um, cotton candy. That's what these liberal churches are. They're cotton candy churches. You look at that cotton candy. Oh, wow. Man, it just looks so good. It promises so much. It's billowy. It's like a cloud. And you bite into it. No substance, but there's sweetness. That's liberal theology. That's the liberal church. And, and by the way, what will that do to your body? If that's your, if that's your diet, what's that going to do for you? Then those people come and sit in one of our pews and listen to Frank preach. You know what that's like? That's like taking a, a two-year-old or a one-year-old 
and taking a big beef steak, putting it in his mouth. Can't handle it. And that two-year-old, that one-year-old is going to say, I don't want to come here anymore. Now you give the baby cotton candy. He's good to go. See, these are spiritual babies in these liberal churches all over the country. They draw on the people. They have a great impact upon um, society in terms of the things they do. And who would dare question whether or not God's pleased with that? Well, you'd have to go to the Bible to see he's not. These people are all competing with God for the souls of people. And many of our brethren are caught up into that. Sad, sad.